Welcome back to the December 2020 episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast. I'm Ian Brannan, here to guide you through the next hour or so, and um, some special guests in this episode. I'm going to be speaking to Dr Fred Stevenson. He's a tutor and a lecturer in astronomy, but with a particular specialism in cosmology. And he's going to be here to explain some of the wonders of the universe. You can see what extreme objects black holes are. You've got to compress the entire sun, which is nearly one and a half million kilometres in diameter, scrunch that into something only six kilometres across, and it would be so dense, its gravity would be so strong at the surface that not even light itself could escape. And that's what a black hole is. We're also joined by Natasha Lund, a science communicator at Kielder Observatory, who's going to tell us about some of Kielder's community work with local children, including an event called Escape Velocity and an online course where you can learn more about cosmology. So you can be sure Natasha has got plenty of questions coming up for Dr Fred in just a bit. First, though, I'm joined by another science communicator from Kielder Observatory. Dan Pye joins us once again to update us on the latest news from up on the hill. Uh, now, Dan... Due to lockdown, the observatory has been closed through November. That remains the way, heading into the first part of December, at least. Uh, however, whilst the public haven't been able to join you, unfortunately, uh, the staff and the equipment have, however, been working hard. Yes, yeah, so we've been working on the uh, the construction and, uh, and the finalisation of all the bits and pieces to put into place for our brand new five-metre radio telescope. That should hopefully be fitted the second that people can travel from Italy. It's in the country, it's waiting in a warehouse, the concrete pad is built, we're literally just waiting for the people from Italy to come and stick it up for us. Then once it's ready, um, we can start to do some incredible stuff with that. Of course, we can start to use it um, for, for more public outreach activities and it's also going to be feeding data into existing research on the sun um, as part of the, uh, the Tan Law Array. Um, we've also been working on our augmented reality app. I've just, in fact, a couple of days ago, I got the um, the tester version for the augmented reality app, and I must say, it looks absolutely incredible. We've got uh, a, a, an app which allows you to um, transform your garden into your own, your very own little uh, Kielder Observatory, and you can walk inside it and you can look at the night sky and pick out objects of interest and bring them down in front of you and really examine them in detail and. You have this whole narrative uh, from the observatory as well, recorded by the science team at the observatory that teaches you about all of the stuff that you can see in the night sky. Um, and we've also been working on our our new secret, top secret project that we're working on, our, our online um, system, which is going to bring the Kielder experience, the Kielder moment to you at home. Um, a continuation from everything that you've uh, learned from the observatory, or if you're not able to get to the observatory, we've got a whole new platform that allows you to um, still learn a bit about astronomy, um, go through the Kielder journey, uh, experience remote observing and remote um, observations at home, um, and even with some one-to-one -one time, with some one-to-one -one, uh, sessions with the astronomy team as well. So we're really working hard to bring our physical presence 
into a virtual realm. Kielder Observatory, also part of National Astronomy Week, which happened in November. Tell us a bit about that, Dan, because you were sharing views from the telescopes at Kielder Observatory to a wider audience across the country. We have, yeah. We've been part of the uh, the National Astronomy Week with the Royal Astronomical Society. We, we, we were very fortunate, um, actually, the both occasions that we did remote observations from the observatory, that it was indeed clear. Um, so we got to see some incredible views of Mars. Um, we got to see some, some views of the Moon. Um, and some views of Uranus as well. So we've shared that with with the general public who are watching on on the National Astronomy uh, uh, Week uh, page. Um, And we're also working on our own uh, live stream events as well through our social media channels. So we can share um, images of the moon, we can share images of different planets and bright objects um, as a taster, if you like, a teaser, um, before you come and physically put your eye up to the eyepiece at the Kielder Observatory. Now, Northumberland falling into Tier 3 in the new lockdown tiers means that Kielder Observatory, for the moment at least, staying closed. Um, You can find out all the info of the current situation online at kielderobservatory.org. Dan, there are plenty of things happening in December. It's a shame that things are closed because it's going to be a great month for activity in space. And Tell us about what's going on because we've got a big meteor shower, first of all. Oh well, there's two. There's two really great things happening in December. Um, first off, the annual meteor shower, the Geminids, is coming. That is on the 13th and 14th of December. The great thing about the Geminids this year is that it does land on a new moon, which means no moon in the sky. Great darkness for us to see more meteors, because of course we need it to be nice and dark when we're watching for meteors, because some of these things can be quite dim. Um, So my recommendation is if we can get outside, if we can leave our homes, then we need to get to a really dark dark sky um, and just look up the night of the 13th into the morning of the 14th. The Geminids meteor shower is one of the most active throughout the year, and we should see some incredible activity if it's nice and clear that night. Um, Secondary, um, and... uh, Oh, actually, there is another thing which I'm going to mention, but it's not not actually happening our part of the world and there is a total eclipse uh, visible from parts of Chile and Argentina on the afternoon of December 14th so just after the Geminids um, that next day we've got a total eclipse and that I'm sure will be streamed all over the world on the internet so it's, it's definitely worth keeping an eye out for that it's an incredible thing to see a total eclipse and then on the 21st of December a once in every just under 400 years occurrence uh, the great conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn is taking place on the 21st of December. Uh, this is where Jupiter and Saturn come so unbelievably close together from our perspective when we look at the rest of the solar system. 0.1 degrees of separation in the sky, which means if you have a nice powerful telescope at home, you'll be able to get them in the same field of view. And I, I, I cannot wait for this to happen. It's going to look incredible. I just hope it's going to be clear. Mm. Yeah, that'd be amazing because, I mean, we have seen um, Jupiter and Saturn getting very, very close um, already and you can see that in the early evening sky uh, now. I've, I've even managed to see it with my own eyes, um, <laughs> not using a telescope. So it's, it's something you can, not, you can see. And um, isn't it sort of southwest kind of direction when, when, it, when it happens? Is that, is that the right yeah. area to be looking? Yeah, that's right. It's going to be towards the southwest um, just after sunset. Uh, it's, it's going to be the best time to, to see it, yeah. 
So quite a few things going on through the course of December. At this moment, we're not sure exactly what the plan is, if there is going to be any plan to reopen the Kielder Observatory to the public uh, to resume any of the sessions that you may be booked on to. Uh, the best thing to do is keep an eye on Kielder Observatory's social media channels and keep an eye on the website kielderobservatory.org for any news uh, as soon as it becomes available because obviously things are changing very quickly but uh, we'll be sure to update you uh, should the doors be able to open very soon which of course we hope that will be the case fingers crossed You're listening to the Kielder Observatory podcast. Now, there's more to Kielder Observatory than just what goes on up the hill uh, in the uh, facility with the telescopes looking into space because there's plenty of community work and outreach work that Kielder Observatory is involved in as well, taking the work of Kielder Observatory out to local children and other societies, not just across the surrounding area around Kielder, but um, into the wider community and across the UK on occasions as well. Uh, Natasha Lund is a science communicator at Kielder Observatory and this is an area that uh, she has a particular interest in and she looks after. Uh, Natasha, tell us about some of the things that you are involved in right now, both in the local community and beyond, because you've got some really exciting projects on the go at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, So we do get let off the hill occasionally um, to go and do lots of other work. We have several things in the pipeline. Um, Most excitingly, one of the things I'm working on, um, I do direct the the arts side of our um, outreach programme and we're working with children in the Kielder area at the moment on a project that we call Escape Velocity. So that's what I've spent most of my week working on. Um, And this is really about getting people that live in the dark sky area to engage with astronomy in a way that's relatable to them. So a lot of what we do now is with mobile technology and what better way to get young people uh, looking at the stars and thinking about the nighttime sky to use mobile technology in doing that. So we're asking children in the same way that you might, you know, use a rocket to achieve escape velocity to explore space that way. We're asking them to do that laterally, not build a rocket, and there's none of that happening, but we're asking them to travel seven miles from their home um, into the dark sky area and then to take an image of the stars or maybe something dark sky related with a mobile phone or an iPad. Uh, and then we're going to curate their, their their story of their journey and the images they produce into a lovely online exhibition so that although we're stuck, as it were, at home a little bit now um, and feeling like we can't necessarily explore as readily, we're still going to be able to show that you can go out there and explore the universe in a, in a modern way um, and get these kids looking up. So I'm really excited about this. I think it's going to be brilliant. Um, because the Kielder children, they, they live under such a wonderful sky and I've got to wonder um, how we can, you know, tap them into that wonderful resource uh, that's just sitting there, really. And I think kids will find that so fun as well. So look out for that. And maybe there's ways that Kielder Observatory can work with, with your school or, or organisation. And we'll have details uh, before the end of this podcast on that. Um, there are other ways that Kielder Observatory is coming to you as well, where um, you've got the chance to learn about space with some online courses that you're going to be offering. Um, this is a project called Kielder Space, which is where we offer online tuition. Um, in a variety of subjects and I've I've got cosmology I love cosmology it's one of the things that I find and I've got it's an insatiable topic because there's so many unknowns but the things we do know and 
the way that we've come about understanding them is very uh it's a, it's beautiful really the way that we understand our universe uh, just with looking really looking at everything um so i'm i'm t tackling cosmology and this will be a a course roughly around 16 hours of, of tuition work online where people can work through several lessons and topics there will be interactivity so there will be uh, video clips and animations and uh, text as well because you can't get away from that and it will take the subject of cosmology and hopefully make it fun and approachable and give people a basis for how we know what we know about our universe so its structure its age where it's come from why it's like it is you know how do we know these things how do we measure distance and then touch on some of the questions that we have yet to answer which are at the frontier of physics and astronomy you know what is dark energy what is dark matter you know have we got to rethink certain things will there be a new breakthrough that propels us so hopefully it will give students um and from all backgrounds and all kind of levels of interest a really thorough grounding in some of these really fun concepts that are you know can make your head hurt but that's the fun of it um so i'm looking forward to tackling that as best i can Okay, Natasha, well, stay there because I think our next guest is going to be of particular interest to you. Dr. Fred Stevenson, a tutor and lecturer in astronomy, but a particular specialism in cosmology, joins us now. And he's had a long association with Kielder Observatory uh, over the years, too. I mean, Dr. Fred, this must be an exciting development for you to, to have a subject that you are such a, an expert in and, and that you love. And this can be shared with a new audience and a new generation of people and, and get them involved in cosmology. Absolutely, it's very exciting. It's it, it's always been one of my ambitions, really, to to um, to get science out there to the wider public. And um, cosmology is probably one of the most interesting areas to try and do that because it is so fascinating. It's uh, it's the one area where people come up to you and ask questions: What is the universe expanding into? where was the big bang etc there's there's a lot of misconceptions uh, that need to be explained but uh, that's what makes it so fascinating really it's not a sort of very intuitive subject over the time that you've been studying cosmology then and, and that's quite a few decades now are there any theories that you firmly believed right at the start which now with uh, extra information and extra research and those theories have now been disproved in any way not as such i mean the big bang theory as it's called possibly not very uh, it's not a very good term for it really but it's stuck um from about the 1950s onwards that's our current so-called standard model of cosmology and that's been broadly correct um, ever since I started studying. But maybe the biggest development was this discovery that not only is the universe expanding, which was discovered by Hubble, of course, famously in the 1920s, also in that sort of time period where a lot of remarkable developments were taking place. Um, Hubble discovered all the galaxies are receding from us in all directions. And if we extrapolate that back, that's what brings you to a much smaller, denser universe, and hence the, the idea of a, a Big Bang origin. So the universe is expanding, and that's very well founded now. There aren't many people who think that the redshifts of galaxies implies anything but expansion. But in the 1990s, certain groups of astronomers studying very distant 
supernovae that's exploding massive stars in very distant galaxies that can act as so-called distance indicators showed that not only is the universe expanding but its expansion rate is actually accelerating and that was very um, contrary to expectations because gravity naturally acts as an attractive force it is the all-pervading force that generates structure in an otherwise expanding universe gravity can pull matter together to form denser concentrations hence you can form galaxies and stars and so on even though the large scale structure of the universe is expanding um, so you would expect if anything the universal expansion rate to be decelerating and a lot of the early models were to do with deceleration and maybe the expansion could stop and one day recontract and in billions of years time in the future we could end up having a big crunch and so on but the remarkable thing that was discovered was that actually the galaxies are moving at an ever faster rate away from each other there is an acceleration in the expansion rate and that was a real spanner in the works that was very very unexpected and it has stood the test of time that was discovered in the late 1990s so it's been just over 20 years now since that discovery and it's still a major part of cosmology the only way we can explain such an acceleration interestingly is to invoke a strange property to the vacuum of space um, to give space a strange energy field that effectively exerts an anti-gravitational effect this is the infamous vacuum energy or dark energy component which can explain the acceleration of the universe outwards and um, i think it's quite remarkable how einstein himself when he developed his great theory of general relativity which is the bedrock theoretical underpinning of cosmology and our understanding of expansion and so on at the time Einstein developed that theory. Everyone assumed the universe was on a, as a whole was static. The galaxies were milling about randomly um, due to their individual motions, but there was no overall expansion or contraction. And he had to put in a so-called fudge factor into his equations to hold the universe still, to make the universe static. That became known as the cosmological constant. And um, he gave it a certain value, you know, to have a very specific value to keep everything still. But now we know the acceleration is there. It's exactly the same type of field that we need to invoke to explain acceleration, but we need it to have a larger value than Einstein uh, to make the universe accelerate. So the interesting thing is Einstein called that his biggest blunder, um, invoking this constant to keep the universe still then Hubble discovered it was expanding and he thought, damn, what an idiot. I shouldn't have put that thing in and I could have predicted the universe as a whole would be expanding or potentially contracting as well. There could be some large scale effect due to the nature of gravity. Um, and now we've gone full circle where actually Einstein's so-called fudge factor is back with a vengeance and we need it in the equations and it seems to be observationally required to explain our observations which i think is quite remarkable um, but the, the the vacuum energy in a sense is even more unknown than dark matter at least we have candidates for dark matter 
certain types of particle that might exist in large numbers to explain the mass that gravitates. But dark energy is another thing altogether. It's an energy field that fills the whole of space. It doesn't clump gravitationally. Otherwise, that would cause even more motion um, and large scale structure than we see. It's a very smooth inherent property of the vacuum itself. And that is very enigmatic and so far um, fairly inexplicable, really, but very fascinating. I mean, just that question there about the universe expanding. I mean, that is something that is enough to make your, your head hurt quite yeah. a bit, really, just to, to sort of get your head round the fact that it's... Ex- so what's it expanding into? Do we know? <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, that is one of those interesting questions people, that really makes your head hurt, which, as Natasha said, is one of the great things about cosmology, is that it does make your head hurt, and it blows my mind. Even though I've been studying this for sort of maybe getting on for 40 years or so, um, it still blows my mind to think about the universe expanding and accelerating in, in its expansion rate. But going back to Einstein again, the way we understand that expansion is is not such that it's the galaxies expanding into space. They're not expanding into a pre-existing void that was there before the Big Bang. The galaxies are actually moving in expanding space or rather they're stationary within an expanding space if you like it's a bit like the analogy that's used is the expanding balloon analogy where if you imagine a balloon covered in dots that you've drawn on with a pen say um, and then you expand the balloon by inflating it then all of those dots on the balloon actually get farther apart so at a later time, the balloon gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The galaxies get farther and farther apart. I was going to say, there's another really good analogy that um, I like because I'm hung- hungry at the moment, is if you have a loaf of bread that you've got lots of, an uncooked lump of dough, you stick lots of raisins in it. And if you cook it nice and evenly, you'll find that as the dough rises in your oven, which represents the universe expanding, the dough will carry away those raisins. Um, and the raisins don't actually move. It's the, it's the ex- expanding dough of the universe that, that pushes them apart. Um, and that's the one that I like because food is good and the universe is good. So I always like to think about it like a, a loaf of expanding bread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The galaxies are like the raisins in the loaf, basically. So they're fixed within an expanding space rather than moving through that space. The raisins are not, they don't move through the dough as such. The dots on the balloon don't move through the actual fabric of the balloon, but um, they move apart because the space between them grows larger. And that's the key to understanding um, Einstein's version of um, gravity, general relativity, and how it can change the structure of space and take material within that space with it, if you like. The gravitational force between galaxies themselves is an attractive force between those masses and if they're close enough together they can draw themselves close together like the milky way galaxy of course and andromeda is famously those galaxies are famously moving together because of their mutual gravitational attraction and in billions of years time our galaxy and andromeda will merge and form a big possibly elliptical galaxy as it's called in a few billion years time but that 
because they're so close together relatively, they can overcome the tendency for expansion. It's only when you get to very large scales that the expansion is the dominant effect. And then the galaxies are all moving apart. The universe is expanding. But where the, um, the balloon analogy is good is because, as, assuming it's a nice spherical balloon, um, it's unbounded. It doesn't have any edges or boundaries. You can travel through the fabric of the balloon continuously and never come to a boundary. And that's how we think the real universe is. The galaxies go onwards and outwards, possibly to infinity. But it could be a finite universe in that it could be an enormous version of the th a three dimensional version of the two dimensional surface of a balloon. Uh, we don't absolutely 100% know whether or not the universe is infinite at this stage, but all of the data so far points to the universe being infinite, which means it does literally go on forever in all directions and the galaxies fill the whole of that space. But then you get the, the thing that really makes your head hurt. Well, how can it be growing bigger if it goes on to infinity? Well, infinity can get bigger, of course, because infinity plus infinity is infinity. Infinity plus 10 is infinity. You can grow infinities uh, as much as you like, really, <laughs> an infinite amount, and you'll still have infinity. So the universe can get bigger, and it basically expands into itself. It is an all the self-contained infinite um, sea of galaxies. That's probably made your head hurt. Yeah, I know. I need I need to, time it's to, awesome, to um, ponder that. It's probably about thirty <laughs> yes. years. Um, uh, N <laughs> Natasha, have you got any questions for for Fred that that, that you, you you regularly yeah. get asked? Because I know we spoke well, I was speaking in the last episode to uh, Dan, and I know that you're doing through the course of November. Absolutely. You're doing the Ask an Astronomer. I mean, um, he he said one of the regular questions that. Um, that, that he tends to get asked is, is on the subject of what is a black hole. Uh, so there's yeah. one question for you, Fred. But uh, Natasha, have you got anything else that, um, that you'd like to sort of um, ask the expert? And yeah, Fred has a really elo eloquent way of putting things. I'm, I always think about things in terms of food. Um, but when, when, um, when Fred's talking, it's, it's, it's very correct. And he really touched on a few things there that I think are fascinating. Dark matter and the structure of our universe and the origins of our universe and its continuing evolution. These are things that I find really interesting because am I right in thinking, Fred, that if we didn't have dark matter, we wouldn't see the universe around us as we have it now? And how do we know that? Why is this invisible matter so important to the structure of galaxies as they are now? And indeed, the yes. reason we're here. So that's something that I don't really know much about and I think could be quite interesting. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting and important question, actually, <laughs> because... Um, Dark okay. matter, go. <laughs> go. <laughs> one, of the, um, one of the main, well, one of many pieces of evidence to support the idea of dark matter is trying to understand how large-scale structure developed out of that otherwise expanding universe. And the cosmology department in Durham, actually, in my days there and currently are at the forefront um, internationally in terms of running supercomputer simulations of how structure develops 
gravitationally out of an otherwise expanding universe you think if everything's getting farther and farther away from each other uh, everything's getting farther and farther apart then how does gravity manage to overcome this particularly in the early universe billions of years ago when it was potentially be expanding at an even faster rate um, and gravity can overcome that but what the compute simulation showed was that if you only put into the uh, the computer model galaxies as you see them and the mass of matter that you see in so-called normal uh, baryonic matter that is stuff that makes up the periodic table of elements mostly hydrogen and helium of course that we see in stars you put in the amount of matter we see in the universe around us and you extrapolate that back to the early universe then you run the simulation to develop a structure and what you find is that there simply isn't enough time to actually generate the structures we see around us now because we see the universe now is very very clumpy we see clusters of stars that make up the galaxies that cluster into groups and the groups cluster into clusters and then we have super clusters and so on that takes an enormous amount of time to actually generate from an initial smooth expanding plasma and the really fascinating thing is you can't do it using currently understood physics if the only matter allowed is the amount of matter you can see visibly but if you put into those simulations dark matter that isn't normal um, elemental matter it interacts with itself um, in a in a very different way to how it interacts with normal matter in fact it doesn't interact with normal matter except gravitationally that's that's the interesting thing about it but that means that in the very early universe the dark matter can collapse gravitationally without feeling any pressure or resistance due to electromagnetic repulsion say because of electric charges and so on so you can get this collapsing mass very early in history of the universe and then once the universe becomes more dispersed and the charged particles combine together to form neutral atoms and so on then the normal matter can start to gravitationally fall into these gravitational wells produced by dark matter and that accelerates the whole process it means you can develop structure much more rapidly in the otherwise fast expanding universe at early times and the simulations show a remarkable um, similarity between what we see around us now and what the computer simulation generates and that is one of the big pieces of evidence to suggest that whatever dark matter is it's not normal elemental material it's not made of just planets and dead stars and stellar remnants like white dwarfs neutron stars etc it has to be in some form of weakly interacting particle then you can get correct structure formation uh, which is which is quite fascinating i don't know if that answered the question actually no it's it's beautiful that's really yeah because i've seen those simulations where there is the no dark matter universe and it's not very clumped up at all there's you know barely anything has managed to buddy yeah. up to make some some yeah. structures and then you put dark matter in and all of a sudden everything will develop uh nicely as we would observe it around us um, yeah, that's something yeah. I find fantastic. We don't know anything really about, as you say, other than it, it, it interacts with gravity, it's there and there's a lot of it. 
um but it's actually it's defined everything we see around us and it yes there you know and, and the it's dark been there energy all this as time. well and it's only in recent history we've really got a grips of it which is pretty amazing go on then dark energy um mm. so we need dark energy to also fit the simulations of structure was dark energy the same at the time of the big bang so at that period of rapid inflation as it is now what do we know about how this dark energy has changed over the course of the universe's life well that's a, that's a really good question which is still to some degree unanswered um because we really don't understand dark energy but given that it is a property of the vacuum the understanding is that going back to very early times it would 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 be the same effectively. There's no evidence to suggest a major change in the nature of dark energy going all the way back to that period of inflation, which you mentioned. Now, inflation is a cosmological theory of the very, very, very early universe. You're talking 0.0000000301 of a second after t equals zero. And at that time, probably the main energy field within the universe itself was this so-called inflaton field, which caused this accelerate. It was a tremendous acceleration at those unbelievably early times, which gives rise to this so-called inflationary epoch. That is required to explain several other conundrums in cosmology. Um, and it could be that once that field decayed and inflation came to an end, which is also an area that nobody actually understands at present. Um, but it obviously did come to an end. Otherwise, the universe would have kept undergoing acceleration from that ridiculously early time. And we wouldn't be here today talking about it. <laughs> so it came to an end somehow. And um, the vacuum energy that we see today could be a remnant of that original field but with a very 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 small value compared to what it used to have so the energy density is actually when you look at them in everyday terms they're very very small even though when you add it up to cosmological terms uh, in in cosmological scales they become very very large and can dominate the universe which i find is quite interesting if you work out the average density of the universe um, in normal elemental material, it turns out to be a few protons per cubic meter, which is virtually nothing at all. I mean, if you look at the number of protons in a full stop at the end of a sentence, it's trillions and trillions and trillions of them. You think the universe itself has very, very few. There's almost nothing in the universe at all, which I find fascinating and also it sort of helps you get your head around how billions of years ago it could actually all have compressed down into a tiny speck um, if there's not really very much there um, but yeah so dark energy could be a remnant of that early phase in the universe's history but that's still subject to very much more research and observations from the origins of the universe then to the fate of our universe, the next question. I mean, how's this all going to end, Dr. Fred? Yeah, well, that's one of the big $64,000 questions, I guess. How is it all going to end? I mean, taking all of the current data 
and theory and observations and so on, everything suggests at the moment that this acceleration will continue, in which case the universe will literally expand forever, become infinitely more dilute in terms of normal matter and galaxies and stars and black holes and so on. And eventually the universe will essentially become very, very empty. It's not a very appealing end, but then I guess the alternative is not very appealing either, where given that the vacuum energy could be changing with time, if its properties change such that eventually it could start to have an attractive gravitational effect rather than a repulsive gravitational effect, which is theoretically feasible, then the universe could still actually come to a big crunch and the universe may end. This would be probably trillions of years in the future, but there could ultimately still be a big crunch and then everything comes piling in on top of everything else and we have an end of the universe in that way. Either way, I don't think is very appealing, but um, we're not going to be here, of course, to witness that, hopefully. <laughs> this is why I love cosmology, because this type of discussion, I know it seems daft, but my brain at night goes to places where I think, okay, so it's the end of the universe and dark energy has overcome the force of gravity it's ripped apart solar systems and now it's ripping apart planets and it's down to the last atoms and it's going head to head with the strong nuclear force and it's going to rip apart the quarks and then what happens then you know that's where your brain goes with this kind of stuff um and it just makes you think wow that's a that's an interesting question yeah yeah um, that's that's another aspect of vacuum energy actually if it does evolve with time it, it can go the way i suggested and become gravitational and therefore recontract the universe. But there is this other theory, which is called the big rip, um, which is where the acceleration itself accelerates, which is a bit bizarre, but potentially correct if vacuum energy changes. And in that case, there literally will be the most incredible acceleration that literally atoms and the fabric of space-time itself would probably be ripped apart. Uh, and then who knows what's going to happen then. That's the voice of Dr. Fred Stevenson on the Kilda Observatory podcast. He's with us talking all about cosmology, all about the universe and some of the big questions that maybe have yet still to be answered. Um, over the last month, Dr. Fred, um, Kilda Observatory obviously has been closed because of uh, the lockdown. But one service that we have been offering is the Ask an Astronomer service on um, social media where people can ask some of the big questions. And one of the most often asked questions is um, Quite a simple question, but with not necessarily a very simple answer, I suspect. But let's see how you handle it. What's a black hole? Yeah, black hole is another absolutely fascinating um, aspect of astronomy and cosmology. Indeed, um, our current understanding again goes back to Einstein's general relativity, which I find fascinating. How that one theory of physics can explain so much and has a bearing on so many intriguing questions and really underpins our current understanding of such different phenomena from from black holes to the large scale structure of space and time itself but but according to general relativity if you have a collapsing star say at the end of its life where the nuclear fusion reactions have all finished so you don't have any outward pressure generating from within, which would ultimately 
push the star outwards, which does happen, of course, when you get red giants and supergiant stars. But eventually, the, the reactions inside finish and the pressure reduces and then gravity can take over and everything piles inwards and you get a crunching down of the nucleus of the star or the core of the star becomes very, very compressed and very, very dense. And for stars like the sun, that ends up as what we call a white dwarf star, where the outer part of the star during the red giant phase effectively gets blown away out into space. But the core of the star compresses down to this burnt out ember, if you like, about the size of the Earth. But most of the mass of the sun will be in there. So very, very dense, uh, about a thousand tons per teaspoon is, I think, the figure that we use for the density of a white dwarf. Now, if you have a massive star that goes supernova at the end of its life, the material gets compressed even more into what we call a neutron star, where you have basically a ball of matter that's compressed so much that the protons and electrons in the normal atoms actually get squeezed into each other. They neutralize because positive and negatives cancel out. And you end up with neutron particles, the other part of the nucleus of the atom and you end up with this incredibly dense remnant which has literally the density of the atomic nucleus or something of the order of a billion tons per teaspoon if you like and that is an extreme stellar remnant but its gravity on its surface is not strong enough to actually stop light escaping from it it can still emit radiation it could still be very hot and glow, if you like, with light and so on. Although it's not far from the stage where if it got much smaller and more compressed, if you have a, a star more than about maybe 10 or 20 times the mass of the sun initially, such that its remnant is about three times the mass of the sun, it gets compressed to such a small, dense thing that the gravity is so strong, going back to your concept of escape velocity that we were talking about at the very beginning of this, if your escape velocity effectively becomes greater than the speed of light, then not even light will be able to escape. And you can think of that actually in, in a sort of Newtonian physics sense. And going all the way back to the 18th century, physicists thought of that concept um, in terms of Newton's corpuscular theory of light. He thought light might be made of little tiny corpuscles of a certain type of material substance, if you like. And then light itself would act like little particles. They could potentially orbit things and, uh, and change under gravity. And if you work out using Newton's physics, if you have a certain mass, what is the size you need to compress that down to for its escape velocity to reach a speed of light. You can do that and remarkably you get exactly the same final equation as you get from general relativity. And for something like the sun, it needs to be something like a radius of about three kilometers or a diameter of six kilometers. So you can see what extreme objects black holes are. You've got to compress the entire sun, which is nearly one and a half million kilometers in diameter, scrunch that into something only six kilometers across, and it would be so dense, its gravity would be so strong at the surface that not even light itself could escape 
and therefore nothing else can escape because light is the ultimate speed limit, as we have mentioned. And that's what a black hole is. It's basically a, a, a part of the universe that is has collapsed to such a degree that not even light can leave it. But this is uh, just to lead on from that. It, it it does lean into cosmology. I know we've deviated a little bit, but it's fascinating, especially to tie in the eloquence of Einstein's both special and general relativity, because the environment of the black hole is so extreme and the that boundary that event horizon could you just go into because i find it fascinating what would happen if i were to go into the black hole and jolly on into the singularity assuming i lived um and what would happen to an observer who was watching me and what does that what are those implications for our universe for stuff that very much goes into a black hole um and how we perceive it in our universe this physical object taking stuff you know, how would two observers journey or see a journey into a black hole from two different points of space? Yeah, well, that's another really interesting and fascinating question. And there are really different answers to that question, depending on whether you're talking about a, a stellar mass black hole, that is a collapsed star type of black hole, where you've got a much smaller compact object, um, and, or whether you're talking about a supermassive black hole, which has millions and millions of times more mass and its event horizon is therefore millions and millions of times bigger. And that means the overall density, if you like, within the black hole is less the bigger the black hole you have. And so if you was a, a, an astronaut, say, heading for a black hole and you went to a normal type of stellar mass black hole, it wouldn't be very nice for you because when you get to that surface, the event horizon, the gravitational field strength is so enormous. You were talking about acceleration due to the gravity, I think, at the start of this section. And saying that the Earth's um, at the surface, you drop something, it accelerates with a certain acceleration, metres per second squared. If you were to go to a black hole event horizon, even over the distance of the length of your body, the force pulling you inwards would be much more massive on your feet than your head say if you was going in head uh, feet first and you would be stretched into a very long thin person basically the technical term for this is called spaghettification where um, you actually get drawn out into a long thin strand of spaghetti as you're heading in towards the black hole so not a very nice ending at all and a distant observer watching you, of course, be looking at you through a telescope a long way away, would see you end on. So they wouldn't actually see the spaghettification as such, but they would see you because of the gravity field of the black hole. You get what's called a gravitational redshift. That is, if light does leave a black hole, which it can do from just outside the event horizon, it's just once you go over that boundary, it all goes in. But this side of the boundary, if you like, it can come out, but it will be very much redshifted. The wavelengths of light get longer and redder because they lose energy as the light is trying to climb out away from the black hole. So you get this so-called gravitational redshift. So as you watch somebody go in, they would get fainter and redder as they approach the event horizon. And the nature of redshift is similar to a, what's called time dilation in relativity theories, which means that 
the waves of light, if you like, are traversing you at a smaller and smaller rate as we go on. And so effectively, your view of somebody going into the black hole would be would look as if they were frozen at the event horizon. Eventually, you would theoretically be able to see them forever at the event horizon, although in practice they would get so faint and redshifted they would disappear within a fairly short time frame. Unfortunately for them, they would keep heading in towards the singularity at an accelerating rate and would eventually end up as just a stream of atoms going into the singularity and um, they wouldn't really know much about it, I guess. <laughs> they wouldn't really exist by that stage. Not a very nice end point. Nobody understands the singularity, though. That's the interesting thing. What are your hopes, Dr. Fred, for upcoming discoveries? I mean, in our first episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast, we spoke to Professor Wallace Arthur, and, and he was quite excited in the next, say, maybe 10, 15 years of the possibility of actually finding some kind of life on exoplanets. When it comes to the, the rest of the universe, though, what, what are your hopes and what are you excited about maybe being the um, discoveries that, uh, that are going to really change the field of cosmology yeah well i suppose my biggest hope is that we're going to find the dark matter particle um there are so many groups around the world searching for dark matter and the the famous large hadron collider of course the, the particle accelerator down in um southern France, I think, on the border between France and Switzerland. The Large Hadron Collider is the most extraordinary machine that has discovered the, the so-called Higgs boson and has done interesting experiments on the nature of particles and a very small uh, scale universe. And the hope is that that machine may discover new types of particle of the type required for dark matter that may enable us to explain the large-scale structure of the universe and, and that would be absolutely fascinating the interesting thing is over the last few years since the experiment was up and running since well it's almost a decade now actually they haven't found anything beyond the so-called standard model of particle physics except for the higgs boson which was expected um, and was finally proven to exist which was the final piece of the jigsaw if you like in terms of the so-called standard model uh, but we haven't yet found anything beyond the standard model which is interesting in some ways and very frustrating in other ways because we really need to pin down this dark matter particle um, and then we could really make significant progress forwards because at the moment uh, there are so many competing theories depending on what the dark matter particle is and what consequence that has for our universe that um, we really need to sort of narrow those down in order to to make significant progress but as somebody mentioned recently it could turn up any day um, as the experiment gets to higher energies and so on it may there may be particles appear that have the required energy and also um other physics-based experiments. There's a, a, an experiment that's been going on for many years down the Bulby Potash Mine on the North Yorkshire coast that you might have heard of, over near Staithes, one of the deepest mines in Europe, is um, is looking for dark matter. 
and um, someone famously answered the question, why do they go down mines um, to look for dark matter? And somebody famously replied, well, because it's dark, obviously. Um, but that isn't the answer, of course. They go down mines because it shields the experiment from all sorts of cosmic ray particles and natural radioactivity from the environment on the surface of the planet to shield the experiment from all of that. So the only radiation, or at least you hope that the dark matter, because it's so weakly interacting, that will easily travel through the earth as if it's not really there. And so it can travel through these experiments. And there's an infinitesimal, infinitesimally small probability that it could interact with one of these exotic crystals or other substances in the dark matter experiment to give a signal to actually tell us this is a new type of particle we've never seen before. And if that happens, it will be a revolution in cosmology. And it could happen within the next few years, hopefully. Yeah, the future is, is very interesting, actually. That's another great thing about astronomy, I guess, like you were saying earlier. It is endlessly fascinating. And the more questions you answer, the more questions you have to answer because questions turn up that you didn't even know were questions before you made these discoveries. And so it's a never ending quest, really, whether we'll ever truly understand the, the fundamental nature of our universe. We don't really know, but it's fun trying and we should do our utmost to um, to try and understand it and try and work out where we're from, really. Hopefully you will get those answers sooner than later. Thank you very much, Dr. Fred Stevenson, for joining us on the Kielder Observatory podcast for a, a great insight into cosmology, uh, the universe, and how we may all just end up turning into spaghetti. Thanks for joining us. OK, no problem. It's been, it's been really interesting. Thank you. I've enjoyed our chat today. It's been great. And to Natasha Lund, thanks for joining us as well. Uh, Natasha, before you go, if there are any schools or community groups who would like to get involved with Kielder Observatory, um, how do they get in touch with you to, to find out more? Sure. Um, you could either email myself or our wonderful office team. Um, that would be natasha at kielderobservatory.org or admin at kielderobservatory.org or follow the instructions on the contact form on our website at www.kielderobservatory.org um, and we will get back to you and hopefully we have so many schools projects that we would love to remotely visit you and do something with you absolutely and thanks to you for listening to this episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast if you'd like to find out more you can search for Kielder Observatory on I think all forms of social media, we are there, and online, kielderobservatory.org, which is also the place to go if you want to book ahead for any of the sessions over the coming months. Hopefully things are going to be reopened sooner rather than later, but for all the information on what's on offer, head to kielderobservatory.org. And until the next time, take care, stay safe, and we'll speak to you soon on the Kielder Observatory podcast. <laughs>